Let me invite you to turn uh, with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue our study in this letter. And tonight we come to the conclusion of the opening chapter. 1 Timothy 1 verses 18 to 20. It's on page 991 of your pew Bible. Um, Tonight we come to Paul's words to a young minister about his responsibility, a reiteration of his charge and responsibility. And in doing so, the apostle tells us about the Christian life and Christian ministry. How should we think about Christians and the Christian ministry? Now, it's a surprisingly strong statement we're about to hear. Let me invite you to consider it. This is the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. This is God's word. May he help us understand it. Let's look to him and ask for that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We pray that you would teach us your word tonight, that we may walk in your truth. Give us undivided hearts that we might fear your name. By your spirit, show us again Jesus and uh, how we ought to respond to him. For I ask it in his name. Amen. Let me highlight three things tonight from this passage, cutting right to the outline. Uh, Paul says a number of things about the Christian life and ministry. He says, verse 18, Christians are soldiers in a war. That's the language of wage the good war. Uh, Then secondly, verse 19, Christians are sailors on a voyage. You get this idea of a shipwreck. Well, who gets in one of those but sailors? And then verse 20 Christians are a society that disciplines its members. Three things about us tonight in the ministry. Christians are soldiers in a war, we're sailors on a voyage, and we're a society that disciplines its members. Let's ponder these things uh, tonight. In the first place, go back to verse 18, where Paul says uh, that he, uh, he gives this charge, he entrusts it to Timothy, his child, in accordance with prophecies, That by them you may wage the good warfare, or fight the good fight, says Paul. If you know the name Jim Elliott, who was the missionary who went to Ecuador, uh, some of you have perhaps read his books, or you've read the books of his wife, or even seen the movie that's come out, uh, Through Gates of Splendor. Uh, Jim Elliott, when he would give his autograph, uh, I'm not sure who asked for those things, but I... um, But uh, he would invariably, I mean, we ask for those things of celebrities and sports figures and famous people, but Jim Elliott was going to be a missionary to Ecuador. Anyway, 
he would invariably write for his autograph using the King James Version, which he knew, 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, which reads like this. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. See what Jim Elliott was saying about himself and the Christian life, this guy who's going to be a martyr in Ecuador. He was declaring to others that the basic understanding of, of a Christian as he knew it was this. I am somebody who is engaged in war. I am a soldier enlisted by God in his army and in a battle. Now, to be sure, that battle, as Ephesians 6 says, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against our neighbor, but it is rather a spiritual battle against forces of wickedness in heavenly places, Paul says there. Now, that has effects in life, of course. But this is why Eliot didn't go there to kill people, though he went there and got himself killed. He wasn't there to fight people, flesh and blood, but to win a spiritual battle for the sake of the gospel. And that is what Paul calls Timothy to here. He calls all ministers to, and all Christians ought to care about these things as we have responsibility in our own sphere. To guard, and certainly this aspect that comes out in 1 Timothy, to guard and protect, to hold on to and promote the gospel of truth. That's what we are to do. That's what this whole chapter has been about. Let me just remind you, back at verse 3, he said, I charge you, Timothy. And he's to, what is he to do? Well, some have wandered away from the truth, verses 3 through 6, and they need to be rebuked. They have, verses 8 through 11, twisted the law of God. And Timothy and we are to understand appropriate uh, relationship between law and gospel. They have, in, in verses 12 through 14, they've denied the mercy and grace of God. And so Paul has to talk about we're saved by mercy, not by our law keeping. And in fact, at verse 15, we are saved because this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Well, they, they were twisting these things. They were swerving away from these things. They were denying these things. And this is what the whole chapter is about. And so Timothy is entrusted, notice the language, entrusted with a charge. Verse 18, something valuable was placed in his hand and he is commanded to take charge of it commanded to care for it, and this is in accordance with the prophecies made about him. Now, what's that speaking about? Well, I, I think more than likely, the apostle was referring to when Timothy was ordained as a minister of the gospel, uh, when Paul actually laid hands on Timothy and set him apart for the gospel ministry. You read about that in 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And he's saying there was some prophecy they know about. We don't know exactly what all that is unless it's just simply the spirit of power and love and self-control was given to him. But he's to use that and he's to, uh, he's to diligently and responsibly because he's been called and equipped by God uh, for such a time as this. He is to... Be faithful in this ministry. And notice that 
he is to wage this battle, and in doing so, he has to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Holding, it says, beginning of verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. What's he saying there? What does this mean? Well, it's probably that he doesn't so much mean that Timothy should fight in order to keep on believing, but that he should fight to guard and protect the body of truth or the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, it's not so much the subjective faith of Timothy that he has as much as the objective faith or the content of the gospel that he is to propagate and guard and protect and defend. So it's less about Timothy needing to hold on to the act of believing as much as the content of what is to believe. Don't swerve away. That's what the false teachers have done. And and I say that as well because in in chapter 3, verse 9, regarding deacons, this expression or idea comes up again, that about deacons, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He's saying, of course, that they need to believe, but what do they need to believe? They need to believe that which has been given to us by the apostles. And they need to do that with a clear conscience. And the temptation is always going to be for you and for me, for Timothy, who was a young man amidst perhaps old, old, long-standing Jewish contemporaries who knew their Bible back and forth but had misunderstood the law or had begun to reject the Messiah. There is always a temptation for them and for us to modify what the apostle has given to us, to think that we're going to upgrade it and make it better than it is, or uh, to launch into wild speculation about it, or, this happens all the time, to create a smoke screen of questions about the Bible in order to wrongly justify our simply throwing up our hands and saying, well, you know what, nobody could ever understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. So we just don't really have to, or have to believe it. The temptation will also be that uh, whenever we have uh, received something from the apostle, and it rebukes us personally, or it threatens to place us at odds with other people, the temptation will be to, to you know, look the other way or to walk away. But that's not fighting the good fight, that's abandoning the fight. And the result of that is a shipwrecked faith, and there have been plenty of Christians, plenty of churches, and plenty of denominations that have made shipwreck of the faith here in the States, just in our generation. So Paul tells them, you've got to stand for the truth, fight the good fight. Now look, if you're a conflict avoider, maybe this seems awfully strong. And others will say, you know, haven't we seen enough fighting, you know, between religions and between Christians? And Paul says, actually, I want to see more fighting from you, Timothy. I want you to fight. Now, look, Paul isn't saying, Timothy, go pick a fight, right? He's saying you're already in a fight Defend yourself and defend your people. Defend the church. Stand for the gospel. Look, if you saw a mama bear near her cubs and she felt threatened, first of all, you don't want to be that person. 
But if that mama bear rises up to protect them, you wouldn't say, oh, she really loves war. She just loves a good fight. She just loves to tear others to smithereens. No, you would say she really loves her cubs, and her instinct is to protect and defend them. You would commend that. Some of you in this room are mama bears towards your children. Some of you were raised by mama bears. You know what I'm talking about here. And so it is here. Paul is saying, Timothy, would you so love Jesus, the gospel, and God's people that you would fight for the truth of the gospel? That's what ministers are supposed to do. And that's what all Christians should care about and fight for as we have appropriate responsibility and opportunity. So that's the first thing. We are soldiers in a war. Now the second thing you see at verse 19 Christians, it says, are sailors on a voyage. I I say that because he picks up this picture of those who've gone astray who make shipwreck of their faith, and he's he's, uh, implicitly describing them as sailors who are no longer journeying to port. (laughs) They have stopped progressing in the right and safe direction. They have swerved away or something, and it is not a better path that they are on. He describes a disaster scene. These people, uh, we might say, have not held on to faith and a good conscience like Timothy is supposed to. But they have abandoned faith and a good conscience, and it has brought shipwreck. Or to put it in opposite terms, they have been deviating from the truth and going against their own conscience. And language like that implies that uh, the problem isn't simply that they have been deluded or mistaken about a few small things, but they were consciously going against things they had received from the Apostle Paul, and they knew they were true and right. And their conscience told them no, but they just continued to say yes over and over until their conscience became seared and insensitive and they began to walk away from the faith. My fellow campus ministers, when I did college campus ministry, my fellow campus ministers and I would notice this a lot when working with college students, just as an example. We'd sit down to meet with some kid who'd been raised in the church, but somewhere in college she has begun to doubt the gospel. She says she's no longer sure if it's true. And after more talk, you find out, well, yeah, she's been sleeping with her boyfriend for many months now, and she is determined to continue to do so with no interest in marriage. What has happened to her? What has happened is that she has begun to justify her disobedience and tell her it's okay with God, everybody does it, It's not that big a deal. I can do these things and be forgiven. God's a great big forgiver and I love to sin and I need to be forgiven so it's a happy marriage. And what she does is she begins to sear her conscience and over time she begins to think, you know, the Bible really isn't that true or important. The gospel isn't really that true or important. There is, friends, a connection between belief and behavior. When people are determined to live in unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness, Romans 1. They push it away. They shove it down. So that if we disregard the voice of our conscience and we allow sin to remain unconfessed and unforsaken, our faith will not long survive. Or to put it another way, it's not only true that what you believe affects your behavior, but your behavior will over time affect what it is you believe. Persisting in a pattern of behavior, specifically a, a consistently sinful pattern of life, if unchecked, will eventually lead people to believe that even the words of Christ can justify living like the devil. And our journeys get sidetracked. And then we're in danger of being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And we're in danger of our boat running up on the rocks and tearing apart and making shipwreck. Some of you have perhaps read the book Longitude uh, uh, by, uh, if it's pronounced Deva Sobo, I'm not sure how she pronounces her name. It's about the story of Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel, who in October 22nd, 1707 was in charge of a convoy of five uh, British naval ships making its way back from southern Spain to the uh, south coast of England. And it was a foggy, cloudy night, and that was, that was in the days before the invention of the navigational chronometer, which, I don't know, a first thing about it, I had to look it up. I guess it helps you measure your rate of speed, and with the help of other things, you can figure out where you are in Until the invention of that thing, you really relied upon the stars and the sky. But on a foggy, cloudy night, it was easy to not be sure where you were. Now, now Sobel tells the story in the book of a young midshipman. That story may or may not be true. There's some historical question about it, but let's just hear it anyway. This midshipman had done his own calculations... And he went to the admiral with them, and he said, Sir, basically, I I think the calculations of your navigators are wrong, and these are the right calculations, and if you don't follow these, we're going to end up on the rocks at Scilly, the Isle of Scilly, and and so we better change course. And as the story goes, the admiral had him hung there on the spot for mutiny because that was considered mutiny on a boat. The young man turned out to be right. Well, now this much is certainly true, whether he played that kind of part in the story or not. The fleet was wildly off course, and they did land on those rocks, and they lost four of the five boats, and 2,000 people perished in the ocean on that one night. It was a shipwreck that brought destruction. Paul is saying, Timothy... When you look out there and you see men and women and boys and girls making shipwreck of their lives, you remember that they are a warning to us all. Paul goes so far as to name two of the people specifically that Timothy and the Ephesians who are hearing this would have been aware of. They would have known. Because these people are a warning to us and a reminder that the only safe course is to hold to the truth of the gospel And to learn to live in light of it. And when we fail at that, and we will fail at that, because nobody fully lives up to what God has called us to by his grace. Nobody does. 
So when we fail at this, nobody lives up to even their own conscience. Your conscience is better than you are. That's why it troubles you about certain things. It knows better than you do. But when we drift off the path and when we swerve out of the channel in which we ought to run, let us remember the mercy of our Savior who came to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. And let us confess and repent and turn back and pick up the voyage where God's truth is our rudder. And let us not be stiff-necked and proud and go our own way. So, Paul says, we are soldiers in a fight, we are sailors on a journey. And then he mentions, as I said, these two specific names of men who have made shipwreck. And he tells us what he did to minister to them discipline. Verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And what we see here is the last thing, that we Christians are in a society that disciplines its own members. We uh, get very uptight sometimes in Christianity about what everybody else is doing out in the world, about what politicians are doing, about what cultural leaders are doing, about what non-Christians are doing. And frankly, sometimes that non-Christian world can begin to think that, you know what, we Christians really think the problem with this world is them. And Paul has just said in the passage before, the problem in the world is me. I'm the chief sinner. There's nobody worse than me, Paul says. But here, Paul says, within the community of the church, we discipline the members of the church if needed. Now that might sound frightening, And it might sound unloving. And maybe you've experienced or seen in the life of somebody else a church that was harsh or wrong in its discipline of somebody. And so this very topic makes you uncomfortable and causes you to squirm. It is frightening on the one hand. They were, it says, handed over to Satan. And whatever that means, it must be one of the most frightening things that could ever happen to anyone. But it is at the same time one of the most loving things God's church can do for anyone who is part of his church. Oh, come on, you say. How can Paul even talk this way? Claim to be loving. And, 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 and is Paul just radically confused here? Didn't he say at verse 5, and he did, that the goal or aim of our instruction is love? That the whole point of the Christian ministry, the whole point of preaching and teaching is love. And you scratch your head and you say, Paul, how can it be loving to hand somebody over to Satan? That's a legitimate question to ask. Has Paul suddenly gone nuts? Well, no. Let's give him credit for some consistency, right? He's just a couple paragraphs away from having said the aim of everything we do is love. So evidently there is something he thinks That's loving about what he's doing. And there is. Notice the end goal of this handing them over to Satan. It is that they be taught not to blaspheme. Now you would think that if they were in the hands of the enemy, that 
you know, maybe all of us would think, well, then they're going to, like the enemy, blaspheme all the more. But Paul actually thinks the reverse is, is possibly able to happen in their life, and that's why he did this, that they would actually come to repentance for speaking falsely about God and his gospel. That they would actually be restored to God because they would stop blaspheming God. Now, how could Paul hope for that for them? How could he not hope for that for them? Do you remember what he said about himself when he described himself as the chief of sinners? He says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. He said, I lied about Jesus. I said the wrong things about Jesus. I denied he was the Messiah, and I tried to kill people who followed Jesus. And God restored me, is what Paul is saying. I'm no longer a blasphemer in that way. And so he has hope for these men, that they themselves might be restored. Now, to accomplish the goal, it says he hands them over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, I think it's best not to understand this as though Paul is going to have some kind of physical meeting with Satan and, like, you know, usher these two men into his hands. We don't know of any kind of personal dealings with the enemy in that kind of way. But, but there is another phrase like this in the Bible, and we encountered it when we studied 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Paul is dealing with, uh, frankly, members of the church in Corinth, one who is engaged in... in, in and illicit affair, even incest with his stepmother. And uh, strange as it may seem, this is common knowledge to the people of God, and it's become accepted by the people of God. Nobody's done anything about it. And so if you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 5, what does Paul say ought to be done? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5, notice what Paul says. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In those verses, you say this same kind of phrase that appears to Timothy. Handing somebody over, delivering somebody over to Satan for a good purpose, that their spirit might be saved, that they might be taught not to blaspheme here. And then he goes on for a bit. This will help you understand what he means. He goes on for a bit, but he concludes that whole section at verse 13 when he says, therefore purge the evil person from among you or expel the wicked man from among you. He's actually calling for what the church calls excommunication of a person in that kind of unrepentant, ongoing sin. He's saying, look, there is the realm of Satan and there is the realm of Christ. There is the dominion of darkness and the dominion of light. There are those who live amidst the kingdom of the enemy and side with him in the war against God. And there are those who are now brought by grace into the household of Christ who are members of his family. And he's saying, put this man out of the household of Christ and back where he came from, 
back into the kingdom of the enemy from which he said he had been saved. But he bears no, uh, no honest testimony in his life by what he believes or the way he behaves that he is in fact saved. In other words, Paul's saying, you have got to love this guy enough to call a spade a spade. And not let him go on pretending he's a Christian when it's clear to the Lord's church that he is not. Where did Paul get this idea? He got it from Jesus. If you want to look at Jesus' words in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. This is the last text I'll have you turn to. I don't usually do quite so much turning around. But Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Perhaps this is a well-known passage to you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which means what? It doesn't mean being mean-spiritedly harsh, angry, uh, mad, uh, violent, hateful. It means It means treat them as an object of the gospel, one who needs to have the gospel and love and truth proclaimed to them because they need to be brought into the church. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is saying that the unrepentant person who won't listen to you, won't listen to a couple, won't listen to the church, that person who refuses to give up their sinful behavior, Uh, is to be treated as one who is not a child of God, but rather a child of the enemy in need of being saved. So love them and share the gospel with them. That's what we are to do. So, now I realize, even saying that, this can seem really harsh, but, but ask yourself, is it loving to let somebody go on behaving and believing like a pagan, while all the while... They think to themselves, this is okay, I'm really a Christian bound for eternal life. When in fact they are not. In so far as man can know. I mean, do we stand idly by, right, when the car is speeding towards the edge of a cliff? Or do we, if we're able, scream, shout, pound on the doors, tell them doom is ahead of them, come to your senses before it's too late. That's what Paul is saying here. The answer to that, of course, is obvious, and that is the whole point of the exercise of church discipline here. It is to reclaim them here. We are, so Paul says, soldiers in a war, sailors on a voyage, and a society that disciplines its members when necessary. Let me make three or four points of application. Number one. Recognize then that to be a member of the Lord's household is not to be an independent contractor or a lone ranger Christian with no responsibility or accountability to other people. But when you sign up to follow Jesus, you sign up to be accountable to his people. And you give his church the right to hold you accountable. Even to declare 
to you as best as the church knows that you are or are not a Christian. Now, let me illustrate this. Imagine that a person develops gangrene in the left foot. And imagine that, the, that as a result, the brain, being the major organ of the body, calls an emergency meeting to consult with the rest of the body's members about how they ought to respond. And as the meeting begins, the right foot speaks up quickly and says, well, it's none of their concern. It can be safely ignored. And after all, the left foot has had it coming for some time now. Then one by one, the hands and the arm and the neck all agree that there's nothing really here to be alarmed about. And it will all go away if everybody will just leave well enough alone. That's absurd. The gangrene will not be content to stay in the left foot. But if ignored, it will take down the rest of the body. Now, thankfully, that's not how the human body ordinarily works because God's a good designer. Normally, if there's gangrene in the left foot, you know, all systems and subsystems of the body, you know, rally to try to do something to help. They go into high alert status. And in various ways, they try to restore the troubled left foot. And so, in a similar way, as members of the body of Christ, um, as members of one another, we have a shared responsibility and obligation to one another in this body. That's the first point of application. We're not lone rangers here, friends. We shouldn't be. Now, secondly, uh, by way of application, when we hear a church say that it believes in church discipline, we ought to be glad because it means that they love us. It means they are not willing to stand idly by and watch as we dash our ship against the rock of unbelief and immorality, hazarding our own soul and creating hardship for others and bringing dishonor to the name of Jesus. And so here at Redeemer and in the PCA, which we belong in our fellowship of churches, we profess or affirm our faith in public when we do so. And one of the vows we take is that we will submit ourselves to the government and discipline of the church. Now, what does that mean? One of the things I like to tell people when I meet with them about church membership is this. It means, look, if I go nuts, if I go wacky spiritually or morally, I am saying to you, I want you to love me enough. To come hunt me down and as much as you can bring me back. Rescue me from the brink. Don't hate my soul and let me wander off the reservation to my own destruction. That's what we're saying when we, when we sign up to the church, so to speak. That don't hate me, love me, right? And it is likewise love to the rest of the body especially young children who are impressionable, new believers who don't know much, weak believers who are easily confused. It is love to the rest of the body to protect that body and not let somebody bring them down in the same path into shipwreck. So this is love. Number three, third application. This reminds us the church is a body with members And it is a church with authority in that membership. Paul had authority to discipline people. Timothy did likewise. So it's not just for apostles. It's for, in fact, the elders, the shepherds of God's people. Uh, Yes, as Jesus said, reactive discipline begins one-on-one 
All of us can be involved in this task with people we know and love. We ought to love them and call them to account. If they won't listen to us, Jesus says you take two or three. And if, if they won't listen to two or three, what do you do? He doesn't mean by take it to the church, stand up when it's time to ask for prayer requests and, you know, point out the wicked sinners over there and call them out publicly and, you know, and embarrass them. But he means lovingly, you take it to the spiritual leadership of God's people, the shepherds of God's sheep, and Lord willing, Lord willing, by his help, they go and minister as necessary. But there is somebody in the church called elders, shepherds, who have authority to discipline members. And joining the church means submitting to their authority. For instance, let me ask you this question. By what authority could elders bar people from the church or bar them from the Lord's Supper if they were not first admitted to the church or to the Lord's Supper by those elders? In other words, well, they couldn't. We don't just decide for ourselves our right standing in the church. Elders are part of that decision. In the fourth place, there's this. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, this is the last piece of application. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, the church is a mess. Every church in the New Testament has problems. You look uh, in the history of the early church, and, and some might say, oh, it's idyllic. And if we could just get back to some ancient time in the history of God's people when there were no problems... When everything was great, well, that would be great. Well, they haven't been reading the New Testament very well, if that's what they think. The church has always been a mess and will always be a mess until Jesus comes back. And why? Because the church is people. And people are a mess in this life. That's you and that's me. And as long as the church is a mess, we will always need our Savior to save sinners like us. And we will always need, in certain cases, church discipline. It's one of the ways our Savior loves his messy people. May God give us the grace to do hard things when those things are necessary. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we bless you and thank you that you loved us and gave yourself for us. Thank you that by your word you teach us and you also rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask that that sin might not rule and reign over us, that presumptuous sin might not grab hold of our hearts but that you would give us a tender heart to walk in your ways and help us to have the courage to love one another and to speak the truth in love to one another. Build your church, guard and protect her, strengthen her, help her. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.